Yeah, give the applause. Well, good morning, storehouse. Wow, you guys are awake. I'm not the only one who's had coffee then. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. Um, I'm thrilled that you're here. Um, let me just tell you where we're going to be, and then, I'll, and then I'll talk a little bit. So we're going to find ourselves in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Thank you, sir. We're going to find ourselves in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And uh, two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series uh, called Faith in Action as we walk through uh, the book of James. And so let me tell you a little bit about James, kind of giving you a small recap of where we've been, what we've talked about uh, as you get to that place in Scripture. So as far as James goes, one of the things that we looked at was that he is Jesus's uh, little brother. We also saw that he was a leader in the Jerusalem church, right? Or in a church in Jerusalem, he had a lot of spiritual authority and influence in his time. And during his time as a pastor, as a teacher, and as a leader, he wrote what we see now as the epistle or the the letter to James. And he's writing it to a bunch of churches that are scattered, right? And what's so interesting about James's uh, approach to these churches is that he's writing to a bunch of Christians. Oftentimes when we walk through books of the Bible, we're often asking who exactly the author is speaking to or who the author is writing to. And here we see that James is writing to predominantly Jewish Christians. And so he's writing to a bunch of people who know a lot of doctrine, And as we've uh, walked through James, one of the things that was pretty obvious about James in terms of his introduction, when you compare him to guys like Paul or, or Peter, is that he's very, very brief in his introduction. When it comes to some of these other dudes, they introduce themselves. They're saying, hi. They're saying, man, peace be with you. Grace be with you. They're saying a lot of introductory things in their greetings. And James isn't like that. And that's kind of what I like about James. He just jumps right into what he needs to tell the church and some of the things that they need to talk and walk through. And so when James opens up, he says, hey, my name is James. I serve Jesus. This is what we need to talk about, right? And last week was the first time that we began to significantly unpack some of uh, James's words, where we looked at trials, at the fact that it's not a question of if, rather it's a question of when, when you will face trials. In addition to that, we looked at what it means to ask for wisdom and, and the encouragement that James gives. And if it's not an encouragement, it's an exhortation to the church. The exhortation that James gives to the church is that if you lack wisdom, be sure to ask God who gives generously. Ask God for wisdom who gives generously. And what was so peculiar about that section, last week we looked at verses 2 through 8, what was so peculiar about that section was the fact that when you break down the language, particularly in verses 7 and 8, I think, one of the things that he is talking about, he goes on to say, uh, you know, if you lack wisdom, go ahead and ask for it, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's one of the things that James encourages uh, uh, the churches. Let him ask uh, in faith with no doubting. Now, one of the things that James is not saying, he's not saying that we as Christians are never uh, not going to encounter doubt, that you and I will not have lapses in our faith. 
But what he is addressing, or the person that he is addressing, is the individual who is consistently contradicting how they act, how they speak, and what they say about who God is. That's the individual that he's speaking to. In fact, in my opinion, uh, when we began looking at James, uh, particularly that section, in my opinion, I think James is talking to the Christian uh, or to the, to the individual who thinks is a Christian, but tragically is not. That's who I think James is talking to. He goes on to say in that same section, right, that this is someone who is consistently contradicting their beliefs. This is someone who's consistently contradicting how they act and how they, how they speak, how they shape their lives in light of what they say they believe in, that they are like a double-minded individual, instable in all of their ways. And we broke down those two verses and, or those, those two words. And when we looked at, uh, uh, Double-minded, we saw that the Greek translation means someone who is double-souled. In other words, it's someone who is constantly like in and out. They want to receive biblical encouragement, but at the same time, they want to adopt worldly advice. And at some point, they try to integrate it into their life and say, man, this is true. And it's not. They are double-souled. They have no anchor. They are instable or they lack stability. Furthermore, when we looked at doubt, and this is kind of a long review, but furthermore, when we looked at doubt, the, 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 the meaning, the root meaning of the word doubt in these verses, in verses two through eight, is to refute. And so in addition to what James is already exhorting the church in, he goes on to say, this is an individual who chooses to refuse to trust God. I think oftentimes when you and I think about doubt, we tend to think about those times where we have hesitancy right? Like we're hesitant to move forward. We're hesitant to make this decision. Man, we're nervous about making a decision. Yet James goes a step further and a mile deeper by saying that individual who doubt, who consistently doubts. I'm not talking about the people that you and I who, who, who have lapses from time to time, who hesitate from time to time. He is talking about the individual who consistently contradicts themselves, who consistently doubts. He is saying that individual is an individual who chooses to refuse to believe what God has said, God has done, and what God has promised. And so last week, James really just, man, smacked us on our faces and then really shot into our hearts. And and so today we're going to find ourselves uh, in verses 9 through 11, where James is going to attack our wallets, right? He's going to attack our wallets. Now this this tends to be a a, a time that's a a little bit, um, how can I say it? It's a little bit sensitive in the church, right? Right? As Christians, we always want to know, man, what is it that, that, that God's will is for my life? Or would you pray for this unspoken? Or would you do all of these things that we seem to do in the church, but when we tend to talk about our wallets and our finances, it's like, that's something that you don't ask me. That's something that we just don't talk about. And as we walk through these two verses, one of the things that I want to submit to you is that we're not going to look necessarily at, at your wallets right away. But what I am going to exhort you through is your hearts, right? That's, that's ultimately going to be the challenge. And so this is what I'll do. I'll read James 1, uh, 9 through 11. I'll pray. I'll begin by way of illustration, and then, and then I'll jump in a little bit. Here we go. This is James uh, 1, 9 through 11. So he writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, 
and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we unpack and open your word, Lord, I pray um, that our hearts, one, would be receptive uh, to the message and convictions you have for us today, that this conviction would lead us to action, that it would lead us to repentance, that it would lead us to trust in what you've said and what you've done for us. In addition to that, Holy Spirit, we invite you to, uh, man, wreck our hearts with what breaks yours, to wreck our hearts with your word as you reveal yourself to us through your word. I pray that we would cling tightly to your comfort and that we wouldn't be afraid to embrace the conviction that you bring. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So, uh, for those of you that are new, for those of you that have been here, as compared to those of you that are new, this is, the, I, I really love preaching and teaching this way when I have like lists and bullet points because I feel like that's organized. And so we're going to look at three sections. We're going to look at three things that I want you to consider. And if you're taking notes, that's awesome. If I'm speaking too fast because of the coffee, go ahead and download our app. Right? It's on the iPhone store and the Google store. This isn't a pitch. This is just me trying to help you because I'm loaded on caffeine. Right? Um, so download the app. It's free. Storehouse CC. You'll find it there. The notes will be on there already. Okay? In the event that I go a little bit too fast. So uh, here are the sections that we're going to cover, and then I'll go one at a time. So the first one is I want you to consider three things. Before we unpack who James is talking to, I want you to consider three three things. Okay. The next section, and I'll give you all those things in a bit. The next section is going to be the four different kinds of people that we see in the Bible. And then the last thing are four things that I want you to remember. So those are the three sections. I want you to consider some stuff. We're going to look at people and it's going to hopefully uh, evaluate. In in light of what we talk about, we're going to be evaluated. Uh, Our hearts will be evaluated, I should say. And then finally, we're going to look at a couple of things to remember. Okay. So before I unpack James, we're going to look at just the whole of verses 9 through 11. So this is that first section. Here are three things that I want you to consider. The first thing that I want you to consider is what it means to boast. Right, James opens up with that in verse 9. He says, uh, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And in context, it would read as if he wrote, let the lowly brother boast in exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation. Okay? So James talks about boasting. Boasting is kind of an awkward word, I think, in church culture and and in Christian circles, right? Because you often wonder, when can I boast? How do you boast? Uh, What does it mean to boast? How do I boast properly? Uh, Am I out of line? I don't even know what boasting means. Help me on that. So I think we find ourselves in some really interesting facets of of, of boasting, right? And what I would submit to you is that we're going to see two kinds of boasting, not just in terms of what the Bible says but also in terms of what we live. And so uh, when we look at two forms of boasting, we can see boasting in terms of self-centered boasting, 
right? This is where we take pride in our possessions and our achievements. We take pride in our self-satisfaction, or we can boast in the Lord. That is that gospel-centered, God-centered boasting, boasting in who God is and what God has done and in his word and in his promises and the work that he's done in and through your life. So those are two kinds of boasting. However, when it comes to boasting, both of those definitions have one Uh, inevitable root meaning that when it comes to boasting, you and I, human beings, inevitably and invariably, right, imitate what we worship, okay? We imitate what we worship. Ultimately, that's the practical definition of boasting. It's imitating what you worship. Now, get you, we haven't even gotten to the wallet part yet. That might not be you, But when we imitate what we worship, for you, that might mean, I don't know, maybe it's technology. Maybe it's it's your appearance. Maybe maybe it is finances, right? Finances not only provide security for you, but they provide your self-worth, right? Maybe, Maybe it's something else. Inevitably, you and I will imitate what we worship. So the question must be, what is it that we worship? Who is it that we worship? And so that's the first thing that James is talking about. All right. And I'll tell you what, when, man, when I am responding outside of the grace of God, particularly in, in anything competitive, I boast in myself and that's horrible, right? Like, like I'm super competitive. Is, is, are any of you like that? Am I the only one who's one person who's competitive? That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> so it'll, I'm just going to preach to Manny and I, right? So this is, this is what it means, right? So this, this is how bad I am. Like I will play Call of Duty with my son. And if he wins, which is very rare, I'm just like, okay, good job. Good job. And then like, I come back and I'll win like 10 or 15 times. And I just like dog him. I'm like, in your face, in your face, I get right. Yeah. The 31 year old beating an 11 year old. That's cool, but I don't care, man. I, I like outside of the grace of God, I boast horribly in my own achievements, right? So again, maybe, maybe your thing isn't technology. Maybe it's not finances. Maybe it's your achievements. Maybe it's in what you can do or what you've done or what you feel like you've earned or what you feel like you've accomplished. You boast in those things. And so one of the things, or I should say, the first thing that James is, is asking us or showing us to consider is boasting. Where does your boasting lie? Again, the root definition, the pra- or I should say it this way, the practical definition of boasting for us as humans is that we inevitably and invariably worship or imitate what we worship. We imitate what we worship. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I want you to consider is your mortality. Man, that went dark real fast, right? I want you to consider your mortality, Right? I want you to consider death. Here's, here's the truth, right? As your pastor, I love you. If you're visiting, man, thank you so much for being here. And, and, and let me just, just cover this real quick. All of us have an expiration date. Each one of us has an expiration date. Bottom line, okay? And when it comes to that, uh, James is going to use very poetic language. Some of you who are poets, some of you who like to feel, man, you probably read verse, uh, verses 9 through 11 when he's talking about the flower and that the fact that the sun shines and it scorches, right? He says some things with very beautiful and poetic language, but he says it five different ways in the sense that we all have an expiration date. 
He says it five different ways so that he can talk to each of the hipsters, right? And essentially address the fact that each one of us, including you, has an expiration date. We have an expiration date. So why does he want you to consider your mortality? Well, the reason he wants you to consider your mortality is because if you belong to Jesus, you need to be reminded that our time here, that this world will not ultimately satisfy. This will not satisfy. Additionally, what he's uh, 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 illustrating in his language is the brevity of life. You guys feel me on that? He's illustrating the brevity of life. Like life is brief. And so this isn't, this isn't necessarily an encouragement for YOLO, okay, right? You only live what This isn't necessarily an encouragement of YOLO, but this is a reminder of, number one, life is brief, right? Number one, life is brief. Number two, this world in our time will not ultimately satisfy you. And number three, that if you and I say that we belong to Jesus, our job in this brief moment, in this brief time, is to provide a glimpse of the kingdom, to provide a glimpse of what is to come. That's our job. That's the goal. The goal isn't to accumulate so that you can boast in self-possession or self-achievement or self-satisfaction. The goal is to be a glimpse of the kingdom of God so that those who don't know Jesus can see inside and say, I want some of that. What do I need to do? You need to turn from your sin and repent and trust in the Lord, right? That's what he is getting at, at the fact that he talks about mortality and he explains it five different eloquent ways. And finally, the third thing that he talks about is, uh, excuse me, the third thing that he talks about is that he uses uh, socioeconomic statuses, right? So he talks about the lowly brother. He talks about the rich. He uses socioeconomic status to point us to godliness. It points us to godliness. And I'll get in, I'm going to give you like the main idea for our time today in just a bit, right? He uses socioeconomic status to point to godliness, And so the result of godliness, and that's something that we need to talk about. Again, godliness, like many other words in uh, the church, uh, get thrown around often. So we need to have definitions for them so that we're all clear. So that when we're looking at godliness, we are saying that we want to be conformed further into the image of Jesus. That we want to become more like Jesus that as we talked about last week, as we get through trials, the question is, did you mature and become more like Jesus at the end of this trial? That's ultimately what we're looking at when we're talking about godliness. We're seeing maturity. We're seeing steadfastness. We're seeing a countercultural way of living all for the sake of bringing glory to God in all that we do in spite of our circumstances. And so here's the main idea, and it's in the form of a question. Because that third point, him using socioeconomic status, is going to launch us into uh, the the body, right? This was a paper. This is the introduction. Now we're going to go into the body in just a second. Here's the main idea, right? When we're looking at the lowly brother or we're looking at the rich brother, the question is not whether or not Christians can be poor or rich, but the question is, are you godly? Feel me on that? The question is not about being rich or about being poor, but it's about being godly. And he uses socioeconomic statuses to point us to that route. 
and I'll, I'll touch on this point in a little bit. The reason I think he uses socioeconomic status is because there is a crazy amount of pressure both for the poor and for the rich. And there is something that ties both of them together. There's this pressure that ties both of them together. You see, for someone who is lowly or for someone who is poor, and we'll go into this in just a second, for someone who is lowly or for someone who is poor, they are constantly looking at to what the world perceives them to be or what they, sh- they feel like they should be, right? And for the individual who is rich and wealthy and taken care of, the reason he attacks the wallet is because for you, you feel like you can buy your identity, Okay, so this is what we're going to look at. We're going to transition into four different kinds of people that we see in the Bible. And as we unpack these different kinds of people, there's going to be four of them. We're going to spend our time really on three of them uh, for no other reason other than time. Uh, So we're going to spend our time uh, uh, talking through four, spending our time in three. And what I want you to do is perhaps evaluate your life in light of where, where, what we see here. And so the first kind, the first category, I don't want to say kind, right? Like we're aliens. But um, the, the first category of people that we see in the, in, in the Bible is we see uh, uh, the godly poor. This is what James is getting to when he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, right? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So we're looking at the godly poor. And so we must first ask the question, well, what does it mean to be lowly? right? What does it mean to be lowly? Sure, we can tack on finances, and that means that we're not making enough or we're just making enough to make ends meet, right? And so I get that. But in addition to being lowly, there are some other facets that come alongside of that. You see, for someone, uh, lowly could be that they feel average, that they feel like they have no value, that they are worthless, right? That's usually what it means to be lowly, you know, not just financially, but they're average. People don't pay attention to you. you. You feel like you lack value. You feel like you lack worth. Oftentimes, the reason this becomes such a, a big pressure is because you allow culture to determine your self-worth. You allow culture to determine your self-worth. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't love Jesus. This doesn't mean that you're, you're jacking it up. I'm just saying, when we're looking at someone who is lowly, oftentimes this comes to be one of the biggest struggles, that oftentimes you allow culture to determine your self-worth. And as culture determines your self-worth, you say, well, that must be how God looks at me, that I am not enough that I uh, am worthless, that I am not valuable. Not only is my wallet uh, full of moths, but I lack value. I lack worth. I don't have an identity. This must be how God sees me, right? And so when we're looking at the godly poor, what James is saying in verse 9, he says, boast in your exaltation. So then the second question becomes, how do I boast when I'm lowly? How can I boast when, you know, I, I, I have little to no worth in my life? How do I boast that when I open my wallet, butterflies come out? How do I boast when I just got to pay my bills, but I don't have any money for anything else? How do I boast when I feel like my worth is below uh, whatever the standard is? It's below that, if not non-existent. How do I boast in my loneliness? And so let me give you four things. These are four encouragements, right? If this is you. Number one, the first one is you can count it all joy. 
man, we talked about that last week. And if you weren't here, uh, man, listen to that sermon. Not because it was baller, just so that you can catch up, right? But um, you count, <laughs> thank you, uh, you count it all joy. Now, let, let me give you a quick reminder, uh, a brief recap of what we looked at last week when it, when it means to, to count it all joy. Nice. Good job, Schnevs. All right. Everett's our pr- production guy, and he, he does this, right? So when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when we're looking, we're going to look specifically at the word joy, right? The recap from last week in light of counting it all joy means that oftentimes you and I will equate joy to happiness, We'll be like, yes, I'm joyful, I'm happy. Let me tell you, let me break it, right? So uh, happiness is because of your circumstance. Man, I got a new job, I got a new car, I got a new house, I got a promotion, right? Um, he finally asked me out, whatever, right? Like all of that is uh, circumstantial. Well, what happens when you lose your job, you, lo- you don't get the promotion, the car breaks down, and you don't have money to make uh, uh, ends meet, or you don't have money to make that bill at the end of the month? What happens then? You see, joy is something that uh, is in spite of your circumstance, It doesn't mean that your circumstance is not difficult. It doesn't mean that your circumstance stinks, right? Or doesn't stink, right? But joy is, as scripture says, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And a practical example of joy is what we saw in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where we see the writer talk about Jesus. And he goes on to say that he endured for the sake of the cross. He endured it with joy. There is nothing joyful about enduring the cross. There is nothing joyful about being shamed and humiliated in front of friends and family. And yet, Scripture says that he endured it with joy. Joy is a peace that surpasses all understanding in spite of your circumstance. So the first thing, my encouragement would be where we found ourselves last week, right? If the question has been, how do I boast if I am lowly? First, count it all joy. That in spite of your circumstance, God calls you his. Right? In spite of your circumstance, it leads us to number two. It leads us to remember the finished work on the cross. That Jesus set aside his deity. If, even if we're looking at this solely financially, right? If we're looking at this as only in terms of numbers and wallets, Jesus set aside his deity and he came to dwell among us as a rich man or as a poor man? Poor, right? He dwelled among us as a poor man. And then what he ended up doing, he was without sin and he went to the cross to die for sinners. And upon being crucified to a cross, he absorbed your sin called you forgiven and gave you his righteousness. You didn't do anything. So when we're looking at how do I boast in being lowly, we can look to what Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is, that he did what you and I cannot do. And that is give us a new heart and a new mind and a new identity. And I know many of you, if not all of us constantly want to embrace that new identity because if, uh, if you're like me, you default very quickly to who you once were because you forget who God says you are. So the first one is, the first one is that you count it all joy. The second thing is that you look to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And then number three, that you look, 
you look to see how the Father sees you. You look to see how the Father sees you. You see, the work on the cross meant that all things were being restored back to Jesus. And one of those things is that you and I, if we belong to Jesus, that means that we have been reconciled to the Father. That's just a fancy way of saying that we now have access and a relationship to the Father, right? That we have a relationship with the Father. And so because we have a relationship with the Father, we can come to this place through his word, because that's where he reveals himself to us, through his word, and we can say, okay, how does he view us? How does he view me, right? He doesn't view you in terms of where you are, but where you will be. He doesn't view you in terms of of, uh, what you are, but what you're becoming. You see, when we look at the characteristics and the attributes of God, one of the things that particularly as we've been talking about throughout this time, when we're talking about self-worth, where we're talking about not having worth, not having value, feeling average, you see, the way God the Father sees us is, man, I have no worth. He'll say, man, you are so full of worth and you are of such value to me. You want to know how much value I sent my son to die for you on a cross and he paid really, really, really good money for you, specifically for you. He paid with his own blood. Man, you, you are my, it goes on to say, Scripture says that, that, that those who belong to God are his prized possession. Prized possession. That's how the Father sees you, as his prized possession, that he sent the Son to pay really good money for you by dying on a cross. So we must come to this understanding and place of viewing ourselves how God views us. Again, because if we don't and we forget who we are, we will allow culture to determine our self-worth. Okay? And the fourth thing, uh, the fourth thing is that we receive, and this is just a, a continuation of that third part, that we receive our identity from the Father. That is, what He has done, who, uh, who He is and what He has done for us, that we receive our identity from the Father, not the perception of the world around us. If you're lowly, if you're, man, if you love Jesus and, and, and you're lowly right now, the world is going to tell you something that you should be. Culture is going to tell you that you ought to look, speak, uh, and, and have some things that say, this is what it means to have a standard. Let me tell you that those are lies. Let me tell you that those are lies. Culture is going to say, man, you need to make this much. You need to have this much. You need to look this way. You need to speak and act these other ways. Those are lies. And the way we combat lies is by looking to how God the Father sees us. That's how it starts. So when we're talking about, man, how do I boast when I'm lowly? Those are four ways. Remembering that you count it all joy being reminded of the finished work on the cross, being reminded of how God the Father sees us, and finally, remembering that our identity rests in the finished work of Jesus, not in the perception of the world around us. The world around us and the culture is always going to change. It is always going to change. Okay? When I was in junior high, everybody wore jinkos. Now, no one wears jinkos. (laughs) Right? All right, here's the second category, right? We spent, we spent enough time, right? That was the godly, godly poor. Uh, let me take a sip of this coffee. All right, you guys ready? All right, here we go. Second category, the ungodly poor. Now, you can look at that again and be like, how can you be ungodly and poor at the same time? 
but it's true. You can be ungodly and poor at the same time. Here we go. Proverbs recognize, in fact, we're going to look at mainly Proverbs, but some, some areas in Matthew, not all of them will be on the screen. That's okay. That's my bad. Anyway, so um, not all of them will be on the screen. We're going to look at three ways that, they're, they're, that you could be ungodly, that individuals could be un, the ungodly poor. And so oftentimes when we're looking at the ungodly poor, we're going to look at the first one, which is kind of a, a big one. It's, it's laziness, Right? Uh, laziness to where, um, I don't know, maybe you're that 20 something that still lives at home with mom and you're holding out for management, right? Like that's, that's what it means, right? That, that, that you aren't going out and being diligent, right? That when, when asked, Hey, did you go apply for jobs? Be like, man, you know, the way the clouds were going, didn't think it was a good idea to go today, right? You are lazy, simple, uh, not very eloquent, just e- you're lazy and you have excuses all of the time, always. And so let's look at what Proverbs says, right? This is Proverbs 21, 25. And he writes, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. That's the sluggard. That's the individual who refuses to work, who refuses to get dirty, who's holding out for management, yet has no job and no calls coming his way or her way. I'm not just singling out you gentlemen, right? That you're lazy, period. The other kind of individual that we're looking at, the ungodly poor, this is also someone who spends money foolishly, right? So you don't just have to be holding out for management. Maybe you got the management position. High five. But you spend money foolishly. What does that mean? As soon as it's the first or the 15th or the Friday, whatever it is, man, that means I made bank. I earned this. I'm going to go to wherever it is you go and spend money. Right? I should be fine. You know, I get paid the day before the water bill is due. So that means I can shop on Amazon. Right? Right? You spend money foolishly. You go out and constantly buy materials and you invest in your hobbies. And I'm not saying hobby, having a hobby is a bad thing. It's actually really, really cool. But man, all your money goes into that. And so you spend unwisely. You spend foolishly. You allow materials to be your God. And that is ungodly poor because at the end of the month, you got no money. You got no money at the end of the month. You have no money at the end of, uh, you know, if you get paid every two weeks, so that's every 14 days, day five comes, I have no money. I shouldn't have done what I did. Yes, you shouldn't have. That's spending money foolishly. Spending money foolishly and not carefully planning. We looked at what wisdom was last week, right? Some of you love to look at the organic side of life right? But yet when we're talking about wisdom, when we talk specifically about wisdom, wisdom provides us with what to do, right? We looked at the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And when we're looking at knowledge, that's informational, that we're receiving a lot of information. Yet wisdom is knowing what to do with that information. So as you ask for wisdom, that means you're asking to how to knock out this plan, And one of the things I went on to say last week was just because you have a plan doesn't mean you're organized. It just means you're an adult. Okay. So, so enough 
with the organic and I'm just waiting and God will provide and you're using that as an excuse to do nothing. So stop knocking it. Stop making an excuse about it. Own it. Repent. And let's move forward. Let's move forward. Right? So yeah, so one is not just the individual who's lazy. The other one is who spends foolishly. And so in light of spending foolishly, you got nothing in savings. You got nothing in savings. For a rainy day, if an emergency happens, whatever your thing is. And, and gentlemen, let me just tell you, right? If you got that part-time, full-time job, homie, 10 bucks a month is better than nothing in savings. Right? You can cancel Netflix, bro, and save. Okay? Just do it. The third thing, right, under the same category, this also includes, excuse me, oh, let me look at Proverbs 15, 27, in light of spending foolishly. The writer says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. You bring trouble on your family when you spend foolishly, but he who hates bribes will live, right? Man, like debt stinks, And oftentimes you get yourself, which means you get your family in debt because you're spending foolishly because that seems to be of more value than Jesus. Whatever your thing is, is something that Jesus cannot give you. And that's ultimately what we're doing when we spend foolishly. That's ultimately what we're saying, that this thing, this hobby, this investment is something that Jesus cannot give me. That's what we're saying. And the third one, as I was mentioning earlier, this also includes false humility. You know, looking, looking at me. Here, here's what I mean by false humility. Oftentimes, people will, um, sometimes, I don't want to say all the time, but so sometimes people will, will leave certain jobs. They'll, they'll take pay cuts. Man, and sometimes that is honorable. That is admirable, right? And you're doing it for, man, for maybe out of conviction. You're doing that out of necessity. Cool, Right? Oftentimes, some people will leave those kinds of riches and those kinds of wealth, and then they'll go out and say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've sacrificed. You see how poor I am? Look how godly I am. No, that's, that's not the way it works. I'm sorry. So if you feel like, uh, man, the Lord led you to maybe take a pay cut or you refused that promotion, uh, man, that's a conviction that God's given you. That's awesome. You don't need to boast about that because that says nothing about Jesus. Let's go all the way back to the beginning where we're looking at three things to consider. The first thing is that we consider boasting. And if we're going to boast in anything, we're going to boast in the Lord and what he's done and what he's done for us, not in how awesome your pay cut was. So stop giving some false sense of humility. Okay? You ruin the witness for, for, for other Christians. Right? And then what you do when you do that is that you communicate a false theology of because I'm poor, I'm blessed. Because I'm poor, God loves me more. It's not how it works. And particularly what we're looking at in verses 9 through 11. Remember, it's not about being rich. It's not about being poor. It's whether or not you're godly. Okay? It's whether or not you're godly. The third person, this is where we're going to spend uh, the last bit of our time right, in this section. We're going to look at the godly rich and number four, the ungodly rich, because there are, and I'm going to go back and forth on these, uh, because there are some principles that kind of overlap in each one of them, right? That's number one. Number two, when you read verses nine through 11, we're going to nerd out very briefly. Uh, many scholars and commentators in light of verses nine through 11 debate on who James is talking to when he's talking about the rich man. Is he talking to a dude who is a Christian? 
Or is he talking to someone who is a non-Christian who doesn't believe in Jesus, right? Uh, you can make that decision on your own. For our time here, excuse me, for our time here, we're going to look at both. We're going to look at the godly rich and we're going to look at the ungodly rich, right? Because that's just what we do, okay? The godly rich. <clears throat> if the goal is godliness, this is the underlying theme of our time in this section. If the goal is godliness for the godly rich, then this is a reminder of what to boast in. This is a reminder of what to boast in. If you are someone who loves Jesus and, and man, you're wealthy and I get it. We need to define sometimes what it means to be rich because oftentimes one of the things that you and I will tend to do, and I, and I was doing this as I was studying this week, like when we think about rich, we think about the one percenters, right? Like, well, that's obviously not me. So I'm, so I'm poor. No, if you have Netflix and you shop on Amazon, you are not poor. Okay. You are not poor. If you were able to pay your water bill and you got here, you are not poor, okay? Uh, and, and if you want further statistics on that, man, you can go to the U.S. Uh, Census Bureau and, and look up statistics for Hidalgo County, right? Uh, even the middle class alone for Hidalgo County is between 28000 and 69000 That is considered even nice, comfortable, and rich, right? And, and despite Hidalgo County and the Valley being one of, if not the poorest area in the nation, people somehow make it work right? Now, I am not saying that there is no poverty in our area. Don't knock that. Don't, don't, don't even say, well, he's, no, I'm telling you, I am not saying that there isn't poverty. But what I am saying is that, uh, man, if you find yourself in some of those uh, uh, income ranges, you're fine, okay? At least according to some statistics. Obviously, there's some case-by-case stuff. Anyway, with all that being said, it's a reminder of what to boast in, Right? It's a reminder of what to boast in when we're looking at the godly rich. So now that we have all agreed that all of us, if not, or maybe, maybe there's one of you, I have no idea, that you're not the 1%, we're still in the godly rich. That is, if you belong to Jesus. And so here would be my uh, exhortation to you. And this is the reminder that James sets before you. You are either going to boast in humility or you will be humiliated. Okay? You're either going to pursue humility or there will be humiliation. Those are the two options. That's plan A and that's plan B. Okay? We'll look at humiliation in just a second. We're going to look at humility first. You see, when you boast in humility, you can't say, look how humble I am because you just ruined it. You just ruined it. You can't say, I think I'm a humble, probably not, okay? That's something others say of you, and that is something that has been gifted to you that others say. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, you know, people say I'm, I'm pretty humble. <laughs> no, friend, <laughs> no, okay? That's, that's not how it works, okay? That you boast in humility. And so here, here's what I want you to know. It's not a bad thing to be wealthy. I'm not knocking that. It's not a bad thing to be wealthy. Remember, this is a reminder uh, for, for you. It's not a bad thing to be wealthy, but pursuing godliness means that you live counterculturally in spite of your socioeconomic status. Earlier I said, excuse me, that the lowly and the rich encounter uh, ridiculous pressure from culture. 
The lowly will encounter uh, pressure in the sense that they should be something that they're obviously not. They're not smart. They're not gifted. They have no worth. Culture will say that. For the individual who's godly and loves Jesus and is wealthy and is rich, that's us, right? What culture is going to say is, man, you should look this way. You should dress this way. And if you don't look this way, why not? If this is the standard of what culture and society say, So you're going to be tempted to want to associate with, man, clothing and appearance and technology and the restaurants that you go to and the things that you purchase and the hobbies that you have and the investments that you want to participate in. And none of those are inherently bad. But when we allow those to dictate, again, our self-worth, we have missed the purpose of being a reflection of the kingdom to those who don't know Jesus. And in addition to that, for you personally, for you personally, you're not living counterculturally. In fact, you're living to the standards of materials in the world and not to the standards that is written in the word of God. I'm not saying you got to be perfect, but I'm saying in light of the blessing that you have received, in light of uh, the blessing that you've been granted financially, because you have it, it means that you have an opportunity to live counterculturally as a way of reflecting the beauty and glory of Christ. I don't care about your investment or your accessories. I care about whether or not you're godly. That's the point here. That's the point that James is ultimately getting to. Your wealth is a gift, not an achievement. And so if you boast in man, how much money you spent to help this dude and how much money you spent to help her and how much money you spent to, to do whatever it is, this is how much I give to the... Let me tell you right now, I would much rather you not if that means that's what you're going to do. I'm sure there's somewhere else here in the valley that preaches, yeah, tell us how much you gave to the church. I want to know what Jesus is doing, and I want to know uh, how he's working in you, not how much you're, you're giving because you think you're cool. I, I'm, you're unimpressive, actually, when you do that. Look, look, at, look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not just your wealth, but your salvation. It's not something that you earned. It's not something that you can boast about. The only thing that you're going to boast about is what Jesus has done for you. That's the only thing you got. And because that's the only thing you and I have, we are called to live counterculturally for the purpose of being a glimpse of the kingdom of God to those who don't know Jesus. That's the point. And so the reminder here is to pursue humility. Pursue humility, not your possessions, because I don't care about them, not your achievements, not your self-satisfaction, to pursue humility so that it would lead you to boast in the Lord. That's what we are to boast in. The fourth category, the last one is the ungodly rich. So this is, this is for the individual. You might be here today, man, and if you are, welcome, love you, thank you for being here, and you may not know Jesus. Let me, let me encourage you out of, out of love. Ultimately, this is what James is saying when he's referring to the ungodly rich. He is referring, or this is, better yet, let me just say it this way. He is saying that you're, you're placing all your bets on the wrong things. You're placing all your bets on the wrong things. The reason your wealth, I'll just 
go straight for it. The reason your wealth is a treasure is because it's an identity you can purchase. That's why you hold fast to your finances, because it's an identity. What others perceive about you, what others say you should be, how you should be, it's all that you can purchase. And so what you end up doing is that you end up going out and you end up spending all that money so that you can satisfy people you don't even like. You're placing all of your bets on the wrong thing. So anything outside of Jesus is subject to loss and crisis. For identity can only be embraced as a gift from God. Everyone wants to be redeemed. Everyone, like an athlete, wants that second shot, that second opportunity, that second chance. And Scripture says that Jesus offers that second chance freely on the condition of repentance. That you repent from your sin and you trust in Him. That's the condition. That's it. That you repent of your sin and you trust in him. Anything outside of that will be subject to loss and crisis. And with whatever money it is that you're making right now, at some point it's going to run out and so will that identity. And then at some point, let's look at uh, Proverbs. And I'll tell you what happens at some point. Proverbs 11.4 writes, the writer says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. At some point you will be humiliated and you will live eternally separated apart from the living God. Because you spent your time trying to purchase your identity, an identity that has been purchased by Jesus for sinners. And it is offered freely, that second chance, that shot at redemption, it is offered freely to all. That's the ungodly rich. And if that's you, man, I'm glad that you're here. My, my heart goes out to you. My prayer is that you would surrender and relinquish whatever control you think you have so that you would repent of your sin, trust in the Lord, trust in Jesus, and be given an identity that no one can take from you, that no one can take from you. And so that leads us to four things to remember, okay? Here are four things that I want you to remember. The first one is identity. We've talked a lot about this in the past couple of weeks, but I want you to remember identity. One of the reasons, and I've I've mentioned this several times, one of the reasons I want you to, to remember and focus on identity is because it's the first thing that you forget, right? Because we as Christians are forgetful. We forget who we are. So remember your identity, And what I want you to do is to look beyond the world's evaluation to understand who you are and look to how God sees you. That's what we talked about, right? That we see how God the Father sees us. Listen to Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Number two, I want you to remember to boast, right? 
I want you to remember to boast in who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's done specifically for you. That's what I want you to boast in. I want you to boast so much in Jesus that you provide a glimpse of the kingdom to those who don't know him, that it provides an opportunity for you to get to explicitly talk about Jesus and share his gospel. 1 Corinthians one thirty one says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's what I want you to remember, boast. The third thing is to rejoice, that you can find joy in spite of your circumstances. You can find joy in spite of your circumstance because if you belong to Jesus, you have been given an inheritance. You have been given an inheritance. No one can take that from you. You're not going to receive it in this life, but you've been given an inheritance, right? This is what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 write about it. Peter says, An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When you read about an inheritance, you're like, man, so what's my inheritance? What does that mean? It means sonship. It means that you get to be eternally in the presence of the living God. That's the inheritance that we receive. That's the inheritance that we received. That when we looked at Revelation 21 a couple of weeks ago, where he says that he will wipe away all tears. He will wipe away tears. There will be no mourning, no death. And he will say that it is finished, that it is done. All things are now new. It is an inheritance that you have been given that no one can take away. No one can take it away. And finally, the last thing that I want you to remember is ultimately what we've been talking about, godliness. I want you to remember godliness. What you have been given is what has been granted. But the objective is not to boast in the perception of the world, but in what Jesus has done for you. As we've looked at trials, as we've looked at asking for wisdom, and even as we've looked at our wallets The objective here is to pursue godliness so at the end of our time, we can say that we became more like Jesus, that we were conformed further into his image. So look at Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. This is, oh, how do I say it? This is like a gutsy prayer, right? So here's my challenge, and and I'm with you on this. This isn't like, I've obtained this. We're in this. The writer says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Here's what he's saying, right? In a paraphrase, this is what the writer is saying. In his prayer, he says, give me two things and don't deny them before I die. He says, number one, keep lies away from me. That's what he's asking God. Keep lies away from me. The second thing that he's asking, here's the gutsy part, right? The second thing that he is asking, he is telling God, give me only what I need for today. If you give me too much, I'm going to forget about you. And if you give me too little, I'm going to curse you. Give me only what I need today, because what that's going to do, the position that's going to put him in, it's going to put him in a position of dependence and reliance on the Lord. 
He only wants what he needs for today. And should he be gifted tomorrow, it's going to be the same prayer. Give me just what I need today. You get here, right? You get to where the writer in Proverbs, right? This proverb, yeah. You get to where the writer in Proverbs is at. You get there by pursuing humility, not a perception of culture. You get there by remembering what Jesus has done, not the latest sale. You get there by remembering who God says you are, not what culture thinks you should be. You get there, man, on your knees, praising God because he has provided. That's how you get there. That is how you pursue humility. That is how it leads to godliness. The question is not whether or not a Christian should be rich or poor. The question is, are you godly? Join me in prayer. You guys are so kind. (laughs) I can't breathe. Okay. Join me in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we close our time, Lord, as we close our time, and uh, as we looked at James 1, uh, 9 through 11, Lord, the, the, the question is not whether or not we should be or can be poor or rich, but whether or not we're godly. Lord, let that be the cry of our hearts. Oftentimes, we measure godliness by the things that we have or the things that we've achieved, the things that we've possessed. And so seldom do we look at godliness by a way of what you've done for us and what your son Jesus accomplished on the cross. Lord, we miss it constantly. We let something like culture or the world or something outside of your word and your person to define who we are. And we equate our self-worth to our net worth. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for lacking faith. Forgive us for uh, forgetting who you say we are. And in the same, uh, on that same page, remind us now, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, remind us who we are, that we have been forgiven, that we have been redeemed, that we are new, that you see value, that you see us as your prized possession so much that you sent your son to die for sinners. May we hold fast to that truth so that we would build our, or so that we would increase in maturity and steadfastness. So that at the end of the trial that we find ourselves in, so that at the end of our time, should you call us home, we can say that we tried to be more like Jesus, that we uh, conformed ourselves to the person and work of Jesus. Lord, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, let this be a time where we uh, are practically proclaiming your goodness through giving. That we are practically proclaiming your goodness through uh, giving. Your word says that you love a generous and a cheerful giver. Lord, the purpose of of giving to the mission of Storehouse isn't, isn't simply to fund the mission, but it is a testimony, whether it's to ourselves or others here right now, it is a testimony that, number one, the money doesn't even belong to us. It belongs to you. Number two, it's a testimony of you at work in our hearts calling us to put our flesh 
to death so that we would not be chained by money. Your word says that we cannot serve you and money. So let this be a testimony of not only uh, the mission being funded so that more would come to hear and know about your son Jesus, but let this be a testimony to ourselves and to others that what you're calling us to do right now through giving is to put our flesh to death. So let us give generously, let us give sacrificially, let us give us with praise and honor and worship to you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.